Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, say, If you're an American and you're professing to be a Christian, well, of course, as American citizens, what we want is accountable leadership. Engaged in the political process. Honest. You, my friend, are part of the problem and not the solution. The church needs to rise. Rise. The Monica Matthews, Monica Show. Matthews Show. Welcome back to the Monica Matthews Show. Welcome to January 25th. Today is hump day. Two more days, weekend warriors. Two more days. That's all you got left. And two more days until we conclude our Twitter Spaces series titled Risk Factor Why COVID Was Made. My special guest and author, uh, Dr. Andrew Huff, has joined me uh, in putting this series together for you, this episodic. Uh, It has been extraordinarily informative. I'm glad to hear from you in back channels that you guys are... um are more informed and and well-equipped with information than you have been in any other space regarding the COVID conversation, which undoubtedly has altered the trajectory of everyone's lives globally. So thank you for joining us. Uh, This Friday, we'll conclude our series, and that will uh, be at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on my Twitter account, which is at Monica on Air Talk. Again, you do not have to have a Twitter account in order to tune in. Please share it with your loved ones far and wide, especially those you don't like. How about that? Bless the people who despitefully, uh, who spitefully use you and who curse you, right? So, and right now you have a lot of people figuring out that, whoopsie, uh, this is not what we thought it was. And maybe we shouldn't have made some of the decisions that we did and people trying to find blame. Well, there are in fact players who are responsible for where we find ourselves today. And this being episode five, we are going to get into some of that. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our space today. If you would, please take a second and uh, retweet this space. I would greatly appreciate it. I know there are a lot of people. I uh, actually sent this uh, this space in our series over to uh, Representative Green today, uh, who will be assisting and leading the charge regarding all things COVID investigations. Um, as I have invited uh, many of our congressmen and women and uh, senators into our space I have no doubt that this information will become uh, very helpful to those who are, in fact, uh, leading investigations around uh, the genesis of COVID, which has really been the focus of of this series. So welcome. I am your host, Monica Matthews. Uh, if you're not familiar with my work, I am the CEO and founder of Clear Talk Media. I also host a national podcast titled Life, Love, and Liberty. I've been on terrestrial air for a little over eight years in radio, and um, and have you know very easily migrated over into spaces. Uh, I have a. You can also check me out at monicamatthews.com and sign up for my newsletters there as well. Uh, look forward to many more uh, space series uh, coming up after this. Uh, really enjoy bringing information that matters 
that matters to uh, your life. Not a whole lot of conjecture unless you catch us after 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time when, you know, we could talk about everything from toenail polish to manscaping. So, but for today's purposes, uh, we are going to host an actual adult conversation that matters not that manscaping doesn't. So uh, please welcome my regular co-hosts. Uh, that would be Tinfoil Tricorn. If you would follow him, that would be amazing. As well as Christopher Moreno, who is in, currently in speaker position. Um, he is also one of my regular co-hosts in our spaces, and we just have a great time. Congratulations, Christopher, for reaching over 10,000 followers. Uh, that is fantastic. And happy belated birthday to you as well, my dear. Um faithful brother in Christ, and uh, yeah, just a load of fun, asks great questions, and keeps my spaces in order. So thank you, gentlemen, both of you for being here. Uh, But for today's purposes, my special co-host and special guest is former EcoHealth Alliance VP and senior scientist, Dr. Andrew Huff, author of his new book, The Truth About Wuhan, How I Uncovered the Biggest Lie in History, um, I think it remains to be seen uh, who else, you know, who else will join us today. I believe, uh, great, excellent. I do see Mr. Hoffman in our speaker position, so I'll introduce him as well. Uh, hopefully, Lindsay will be able to join us as well. She affords us um, a lot of uh, inside information. If you're not following Texas Lindsay, even though she's not here yet, please do so. Uh, she is a bit of a, li- of a liaison to whistleblowers within the uh, medical and science and tech uh, community. Uh, she ho- she also hosts great spaces, uh, and make sure you're following people in my uh, in my my panel position. Uh, so, Colonel John T. Hoffman, U.S. Army retired senior research fellow, uh, Food Protection and Defense Institute, University of Minnesota. Uh, Colonel Hoffman served as an advisor to the U.S. Department of Justice and as a post-9-11 appointee with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. He previously served in the United States Army in military law enforcement, intelligence, and anti-terrorism roles. He joined us uh, with our first space in our first episode. If you've missed those, you can go back. Uh, we have those archived in my spaces, but we also have them archived as shows. So you can subscribe to my podcast where you can find uh, podcasts on any download medium, whether it's Apple iTunes or or whatnot, uh, uh, Spotify, uh, all of those places. You can find my podcast and you're, this is something you're not going to want to miss. These episodes have been fantastic. So without further ado, I think I've done all my introductions. Uh, Dr. Huff, thanks for having us again. Thanks for allowing us to host you. This has been remarkable. I get a lot of great feedback and I know you are busy, busy, busy. Uh, making uh, all the rounds right now regarding your book and getting the information out of what really happened with the genesis of COVID. So tell us what we're going to talk about today, sir. Well, today we're going to talk about the the COVID emergence timeline and uh, really try to get into the cover-up, the cover-up history, and why certain people or parties maybe sort of engaged in the activities that they did. And I noticed that Charles uh, just joined us. Do you want to invite him to speak? I just did, yes. Excellent. And yeah, for those of you who are not Perfect. aware of who Charles Rixey is, uh, I will, I'll let you make that introduction, Andrew, if you don't mind. Sure. So Charles Rixey and I uh, met, I guess, about a year and a half ago. So he's a former United States Marine Corps veteran. He was a commissioned officer and he specialized in uh, chemical and biological weapons. He actually taught uh, many of the officers uh, in the Marine Corps, and I think across the military, in all things uh, bioweapons. So I guess a good place to start here is, so John Hoffman and I 
uh, about a year, year and a half ago, both came to the same conclusion with some analysis that we're doing related to, to Chinese um, PPE. <clears throat> so uh, PPE is an acronym for personal protective equipment. And what we had both noticed is that the Chinese started buying up all the global PPE in the fall of 2019. It looked like the signal was in November, December. And if you actually go back and look at trade data, it's before that. So I think why that's a good place to start is it indicates that we weren't being told the truth about what's going on. And in the previous spaces, we, we got to the point where we were discussing how the, the vaccine itself could have been partially used as a cover-up. I think we're going to end there today. So, Colonel Hoffman, do you want to talk a little bit about your this trade signal that you noticed? Sure. Happy to, and good afternoon, everybody. This is um, information that actually came out very, very early in the evolution of um, COVID-19 in the United States and around the world, but it was a signal that was largely ignored for some reason. Uh, still don't understand why people did not want to pick up on this and look at it. But what um, what began to manifest itself in the United States, uh, Europe, and in Australia was a, a real estate entity owned by the Chinese government um, called Greenland was orchestrating the purchases on very, very large scale. We're talking shipping containers full of orders of PPE from around the world and sending it to China. Um, it became such an issue in Australia that the Australians in the fall uh, cut them off, wouldn't let them ship anything out of the country and stopped their activity. That activity persisted in the United States uh, even after January of 2020. And as far as I know, no action was ever taken, but they shipped a tremendous amount of uh, bulk PPE of all types out of the United States. Um, and they weren't just buying from traditional suppliers of medical grade PPE. Um, they were buying in bulk from suppliers uh, and retailers to include Lowe's and other places like that. Uh, bulk quantities of uh, N95 masks, other kinds of PPE, whether it's gloves, gowns, hoodies, you know, booties, all those kinds of things. They were buying them up and they were shipping all this stuff back to China. Well, if this didn't start until December, why would all of that have been happening early in the fall? Um, the earliest signals are uh, in October of actual transactions. That's only because that's when uh, some folks took notice of the fact that they were doing this. We don't actually know exactly when they started buying this. But uh, another thing that occurred that you might recall is a call went out for Chinese nationals around the world to buy PPE at retail locations, wherever they could find it, and send them home to China. Um, this became, uh, you know, commonly known and reported in the newspapers in December. But apparently that had actually started much earlier than that. But we don't know exactly when. That this is an area that needs a little bit more research and has not been researched as much as what happened with uh, the Greenland activities. Um, but this was a large-scale effort. Now, you know, there are things that, that are indicators and there are things that are signals. Some get ignored, some don't. How this one got ignored is a little astonishing uh, because this was a major effort to resupply themselves with PPE. I agree. Well, and actually, I didn't know about the, the second half of that. So I didn't know that the, the Chinese government had put a call out to Chinese nationals to send uh, PPE. So that, that's new to me. So uh, another interesting thing happened over, actually happened this past week. So a series of documents have come out that 
indicate the Department of Defense through their medical intelligence arm knew that this disease was spreading in looks like early November, at least according to this updated report, in Wuhan, China. So here we have a you know two different signals. We have a signal from the PPE being purchased, going through different channels of the government, potentially the Department of Homeland Security, through the Department of Defense, maybe through uh, someone like the CIA or ODNI. And then also, you know, here's the, the military health intelligence arm saying, hey, there's a disease spreading in, in Wuhan. So, uh, John or Charles, who do you think that this information would typically get filtered up to in the government? Where does this information go and how does it get processed and who makes decisions around it? I would say he knows more about the NMCI than I do. Well, this is John. I can tell you that signals like this are supposed to be picked up in multiple channels at the same time. I mean, think about it. This is an issue that Justice Department should have been uh, recognizing and picking up on. These are signals that DOD certainly was picking up on, but where that was being reported and what was being done with it is a little hard to understand right now. Homeland Security certainly had a reason to pick up on this and be looking at it. And just think in terms of HHS, if they're the senior health management entity in the country, they would be very interested in this kind of information. And you would think it would put CDC on the case immediately. But for some reason, those things did not happen. Um, you know, th this PPE thing is actually bigger than just those two areas that I explained to you. Another interesting fact is that starting in September, PPE shipments to the United States from China dropped off dramatically. Remember, uh, a lot of PPE production had moved to China. The Chinese bought companies and moved them over there to produce PPE in China. Uh, and talking to large hospital organizations uh, when we were first looking into this in the in early 2020 um, when the signal became apparent we found out that most of the significant ppe items used in hospitals um, were actually put started to be put on back order in september uh, and a great deal of that was actually coming from china now they're not the primary supplier necessarily but if you take the Chinese shipments out of the mix, that's going to create back orders for products um, like PPE that go to these large hospital and medical organizations. And that shortage existed all the way into 2020, as we all know. But that started in September. Why was that not a major signal that, hey, we need to be taking steps to fix this? Well, so that leads to the obvious question. So is this government incompetence at large scale? I mean, I've worked in the government and it, across different agencies and, and served in the military, I know how things can slip through uh, slip through the cracks. Or is this something more nefarious? Is this a blatant uh, cover up? And I'd like to hear both of your opinions on that. Well, I th there's actually another thing that was completely missed, which was um, PCR tests were also purchased in bulk by China starting in I, I believe September of 2019. So. In addition to all the PPE, testing supplies were also being gathered up in bulk. And so that's yet another signal that was missed. And I mean, personally, I, 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 it's hard to say since, since I've seen plenty of evidence to wonder why we responded incorrectly here in the United States. It, I don't really, it, I can't really say whether or not it's incompetence or something else, because 
all I know is that a lot of things were happening and we were and we were ignoring them. And I, I just don't know if it was on purpose or not. So really quick. Um, let me let me step in for just a quick question and, and for the room's clarification. If you are just now joining the space, we have Dr. Andrew Huff. Um, we have uh, Charles um, Rixie. We have uh, Colonel um, John Hoffman uh, covering, uh, you know, COVID. And right now we're talking about the PPEs and China's big dash across the world. PPEs in the lead up to the world finding out about COVID-19. Um, so my question here is uh, kind of on two fronts. One, what do you guys think was the motive um, behind their big dash to buy all of this? Was it that they what they knew that they had an issue uh, and they were trying to consolidate and grab as much as possible because of their population risk? Or was it that they wanted to grab all of these PPEs knowing it was going to spread globally? I think, well, I think it could be both those things. So one, they, they were definitely aware that something was happening. They, they were aware that there was a leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And we covered this in the other sessions, but it's a good refresher. And they started buying containment equipment, emergency containment equipment, to get ahead of the leak and get control of it. And the leak actually might have went on for a period of time. So oftentimes when you have a, a leak in a laboratory, <clears throat> you know, think about it. You're, you're dealing with something you can't see, you can't smell, you can't taste. You, you have no sensory perception of it. The only way that you become aware of is that people start getting sicker animals. So the process of actually containing the leak um, can go on for an extended period of time. And that's what I suspect uh, happened based on the evidence and the epidemiology data. Well, I'd add that people have to understand China is different than the United States. Um, so you have to understand the context. In China, anything civilian is also military. Uh, anything military is also civilian, and anything is strategic. So with every event, every eventuality, there's always a strategic aspect to whatever the Chinese are doing, and the Chinese historically always look long-term. So what are the strategic implications of what they're doing? Well, clearly, if they're having to fight a disease, they need resources, and they don't want anybody to cut off those resources that they might need to fight the disease in China. Conversely, in the U.S., people are looking at this potentially, well, Chinese have a problem. They need resources. Maybe that's what this is about. They're just having to deal with the, with the resources that they're going to need. And the Chinese are assuring everybody this is not a pandemic. It's not going to leave China and not to worry about it. Well, clearly, the Chinese knew better. And I clearly think that the Chinese saw this as a potentially global pandemic early on, and they were positioning themselves to take advantage of it in whatever way they could, while at the same time protecting themselves. Just think of the economic damage yeah. that, that's done around the world. Colonel, and that's an excellent point. And, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Um, I mean, if we had the if, if we had the ability to change hindsight, you know, the world would be a lot different. Um but what we do know now with the leaks of the Twitter files and the Fauci files and uh, all the things that have now come out is that it's very clear that Fauci and our medical experts uh, in his little circle here in the United States and globally were all very well versed on what was taking place uh, with COVID-19 situation, potentially, a, you know, not potentially, very much a lab leak, very much that this was man-made. Um, they were very well versed in this and they were um, not being honest with the public, right? And so my question to you guys is, given that we know the government, and I don't want to sidetrack the conversation, but given that we know the government was so invested in Twitter and Snapchat, all these social media platforms, and we know, know that Fauci knew 
um, this was becoming an issue, certainly in January of 2020. Um, I can recall seeing on Snapchat and other platforms these people dying in the streets in December of 2019 and and thinking, oh, man. And so I started going to the store, grabbing some stuff um, before the real panic set in. So my question is, how did they drop the ball there? Do you know, is there any insight to that? Well, and I think that's a, an excellent question, and I, I really appreciate the way that you frame that. The question, and where I was trying to uh, steer the line of questioning, is who knew what, uh, where in the government, and, and when? And that's really, I think, the key details that many of us are missing. And that's why I'm hoping the House uh, actually launches a, a really deep investigation to, to figure this out, because the point that I was trying to, to get to is that if, if we have so many different signals – in different channels. Uh, so we have supply supply chain signals. We have uh, medical, uh, medical, I guess, equipment signals. We actually have intelligence that there's a disease spreading. Then why, you know, then why didn't someone act and sound the alarm? And, you know, if there is a cover-up, you know, who makes the decision to, to, to basically go into cover-up mode and then launch, launch this, you know, incredibly insane psyop against the American people? I mean, I think these are really the the really the, the the important questions here and i don't have good answers to those this john i don't i don't think we even have enough facts to really answer that clearly the signals were missed clearly there was intent in some of that i think there was also uh, almost some self-deception on the part of some officials and some agencies relying on what they were hearing from certain quarters and then assuming the chinese were being honest i mean the world Health organization certainly took China's word and reassured everybody this was not going to be a major global problem. And they did that even after serious outbreaks were occurring in Europe. I mean, we know things were happening in Europe in November. And in December, Italy was already in trouble. And by January, they had a terrible situation on their hands. And yet the World Health Organization was still not reacting at the at the way it should. So this is bigger than just the United States not reacting to this. It's also the World Health Organization. And I think all of that really muddies the water on this. I agree, I agree completely. So what other countries do you think had had caught wind of this before January of 2020? Well, of course, there were cases in France and Italy before then. Um, in fact, uh, the French have said that based on lab uh, samples that they had taken from people who had died <clears throat> um, in various hospitals, they can they can find signals of this in October in France. Well, think about the time evolution for it to get there from from China. Um, you can you know when you whenever you're doing an epi investigation, as you well know, you know your your challenge is to try to find the index case. And when you look at a disease like this and how it spreads, the likely ways it spreads and the time it takes to do things, the index case they're looking for has to be September or earlier in China. Um, I think it could well be in the middle of the summer of 2019 because it would take time for this to evolve in this manner and reach Europe. Yes, there's a lot of movement of Chinese between China and Europe. There was a lot going on at that time to, to move it uh, because infected persons would travel. They might not even know they were sick. But you still have to look through the infection process and, and look at a timeline of when this likely broke before you would have that many cases and the probability of it showing up that early in multiple locations in Europe. 
I agree completely. I'm sorry. Thank you. So I'm not sure if this is the correct um, exercise that I'm looking for, but it's the one I'm most familiar with, which was the event 201 exercise that took place uh, in October of 2019 regarding a global pandemic. And in, in all of it, was you know mirrored exactly what we ended up contending with. I'm also reminded of Mike Pompeo standing at a podium uh, talking about this being a live exercise, and President Trump somewhat inaudibly says, "Well, I, you should have told me that." <laughs> and so, you know, I think there are some pieces of the, uh, some clues that, that quite possibly we're overlooking. Uh, I mean, is there any plausibility to that? Well, I, I think it's completely plausible. I, I think so. What you're suggesting is that this went up all the way to one step below the president and then his advisors did not communicate the truth to him. Is that what you're suggesting? Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, when you're talking about the global landscape and, you know, my kid had TikTok videos, whether they were legitimate or not, of people writhing and falling out in the streets and, you know, allegedly dying uh, in in the fall, right? Before before this ever, I mean, these kids, you know, they, they were fed this stuff beginning, I believe it was in late October. And so right around the time of the Event 201 exercise. And um, yeah, so... It, Yes, I, I am absolutely 1,000% suggesting that there were people who knew exactly what was about to take place and why. Now, who those players are, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not ready to throw those allegations out there but um, uh, or accusations without complete evidence. But you guys are in the know and you have brought us this series, you know, beginning at the beginning of the genesis of, of COVID and other uh, bioweapons. And so we know we have a bioweapon in our hands. Uh, we know that pandemics, you know, are are a global possible uh, key to resetting, if you will, economies, people, freedom of movement and uh, supply chains, supply chain interruptions rather. And yes, it appears by all accounts that Mike Pompeo knew exactly what was happening, as did others. And what does that mean? Well, and I think to take one one quick step back, so Event 201, and we covered this in a previous space, but I think it would be good for, for Colonel Hoffman to hear this. Uh, so it, it's important to remember that the world's wealthiest people, you know, billionaires and, and private companies and these large corporations that are part of the, the World Economic Foundation, they have their own private intelligence uh, or business intelligence units. And I've, I've seen some of these and I've been recruited to work in some. And a small team would be 30 people. A large team would be 100, and these are different quantitative analysts, uh, human uh, intelligence collection experts. It basically mirrors or it's very similar to what uh, the capabilities of someone like the U.S. government would be. So what I think Event 201 is, it's actually a lot of these these big companies coming together to um, basically condition everyone for what's about to happen for their own economic benefit. And do governments play a role in that? I'm guessing that at least some aspects of the Five Eyes intelligence community do have a hand in that. I, I don't see how they couldn't because these people are all friends with each other. They show up to meetings. They go to cocktail parties together. I mean, I don't think that's some wild conspiracy theory. 
Yeah, there's a, there's another one I'm actually looking up right now uh, that that does involve people within our upper ranks, uh, military as well. Uh, and it may not have been to a one, but you're correct about about what you just said. And I'm not sure how many people in the room actually knew that that takes place. Uh, yes, for economic reasons. So I will look that up as you guys continue on in your conversation. And I'll bring it to you. Thanks. And Dr. Huff, I think we covered this in the previous uh, space, but I just want to I did get a question from um, someone in the in the crowd. Um, Dr. Martin, um, where we um, there was a huge flu that kind of swept through everybody in the fall of 2019. And it was pretty bad. Um, and so when something like that were to take place, I think we're all aware of that. Wouldn't that have thrown red flags uh, when these people would go to the hospital and, or the doctors, whatever, and they would make them leave because they didn't want them in there because it basically had some symptoms that they were not completely familiar with when it came to the traditional flu. So wouldn't that have thrown red flags in 2019 to our to our health leaders? Well, not necessarily, because what happens in the fall is that the flu and cold season uh, kicks up. So from a biosurveillance perspective, the, the signal is always sort of, uh, I guess, muddy in the fall because it, it's not very specific. So RSV cases could be taking off, flu cases could be taking off, the common cold. And then, which we discussed on a previous space about how biosurveillance systems work, over-the-counter medical, medical uh, medicines, uptick, all the different types of signals that you typically look for in the fall, even foodborne illness ticks up in the fall. It all gets sort of conflated together when you do the analysis. And it just looks like, hey, it's an early strong season. And unless they are doing diagnostic tests to isolate and look for something new, they really have no clue what it is. And I'm sure everyone in here can relate to this. I mean, think about how many times that you've been to the doctor and you've got some nasty illness, some upper respiratory infection. And you go in there, you tell the doctor, you know, what your symptoms are, and the doctor then prescribes some antibiotic to you, and then you walk out the door. In the vast majority of uh, ambulatory cases that present with infectious diseases, there's no diagnostic test ever performed. I mean, probably like 90 or 99. So they typically don't start hunting or reporting things up through uh, state and local public health authorities, which then trickle into like the CDC, for example, unless there's something really unusual happening and we don't hit that point until january in the united states yeah you have to remember when 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 you begin to have a flu outbreak um many of the symptoms are similar to the uh, what a average middle-aged person who was in good health would experience at the onset of covid you also have to understand that the majority of younger people to middle-aged people who were otherwise healthy if they contracted it they were not necessarily headed to the hospital they weren't going to be um uh, you know intubated and, and put right into the icus a few were but because the numbers were not that great of people doing that it became conflated into what was seen was seen in europe particularly in italy and and france from the reports i've seen that it was assumed this was um a more severe flu outbreak it wasn't recognized as a unique uh viral infection from from the flu and so people were not reacting to it you weren't getting the signals up to the medical channels uh that something more serious was 
was breaking in those areas. We had the same thing here. But once this broke into the elderly and the more challenged community, that's when you started seeing large numbers of people being admitted to ICUs. That's when the fatalities really started setting in. And the mortality from this went up dramatically. But for most of Europe and for the United States, that's really... Well, Europe, December, and then in the United States, we're talking about, you know, January into February before we really started seeing signals here. This was something entirely different. <clears throat> now, well, it doesn't, doesn't compensate for the fact that we had all these other signals that something was happening in China that was much bigger than the flu. And certainly questions should have been asked. People should have been looking, and they were not. Um, <clears throat> one thing I want to point out is that the – First of all, there there was a large flu wave in China, and we're pretty sure that it was a flu wave because in the rest of the world, <clears throat> there was still a flu yeah. uh, moving onward into the spring. <clears throat> and this the, the flu wave started in October, and which is early, in, in Hubei province. And one of the things that I think is that they were able to cover it up. I think they knew that it was that it, something had happened, and they were able to cover it up because there was an actual flu wave that was moving on through. Because the flu wave was was enough that in some places schools were being closed, which in China is not completely abnormal. But we also have to understand that the flu for children is <clears throat> more severe than for. COVID-19. In fact, when I crunched the most recent numbers, it was, I want to say it was 15 times more severe than COVID-19 on average for the ranges 17 and under. So that is, <clears throat> that's a sizable difference. And so you wouldn't necessarily see if, if it was traveling through children and young people, it would be harder to see the signal because it's, it's really in the elderly that it's so severe. And the second thing I want to say is that a lot of people think that the disappearance of the flu in, in 2020 was because we never tested and everybody just shifted things over to being COVID-19. And I don't believe that's the case, at least not until like the summer of 2020, because I was tested for flu in March of 2020. And there were still thousands of tests. And what I believe is that the reason that the flu disappeared is because the entire globe used flu measures when they were, they were doing lockdowns and, and masking and social distancing, which is, and, and that makes sense because why would the flu disappear and not COVID-19? Well, if COVID-19 was traveling via aerosol transmission, and not fomite or droplet, well, then there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why the flu disappeared, but not COVID-19. And I think that's been completely missed. Uh, Andrew, I found what I was looking for. Uh, and, and none other than the Washington Post, which I rarely uh, contribute anything to of truth. However, this was an exercise hosted by Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security in 2018. And it was, uh, the simulation was a bipartisan group of current and former high-ranking U.S. government officials played by a team of presidential advisors, 
faced with a host of real world policy, political and ethical dilemmas. So we had a former Senate majority leader. We had a Senate majority leader, Susan Brooks as well. Uh, you know, and, and this went on all day. And it was very disturbing in that we lost, you know, uh, I believe they were basing it on SARS as well as an Ebola outbreak that we were contending with at the time. Um, and I think they, they calculated a loss of 10% of the population. So this was in, this was reported in May of 2018. And then in the fall of 2019, we begin, you know, and in kind of following Colonel Hoffman's timeline of when the PP, uh, once the PPP started, uh, or E started, uh, you know, with shipping and holding off and hoarding, if you will, internationally, uh, you know, some of this, all of these pieces are starting to come together uh, to one extent or another. But I realize that there are exercises that you do. Um, it's just the timing of this and as it relates to SARS and where you guys have been with the whole conversation with HIV, which again, for those of you who are new to this space, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episodes. Uh, Mr. Rixie brings the receipts in every single episode. And so does uh, Colonel Hoffman in, in the episodes that he's been able to join us. So the receipts there regarding HIV, uh, so does Dr. Huff. That's the whole point in doing this. So, um, yeah, so I just wanted to bring that forward. And and I'm still looking for uh, Mike Pompeo's uh, presser. But uh, if I can get audio of that, it's a very brief clip. I'll be happy to play it for the space. Or if any of you have it, you're welcome to DM it to me and we'll play it. But uh, that's what I was referring to. Thank you. So I don't find anything typically nefarious about tabletop exercises in themselves. So for everyone who's new to what a tabletop exercise is, it's thought of, it's a type of exercise that either bureaucrats, policymakers, uh, people in industry and positions of power conduct so that when a disaster happens, whether in this case, you know, a biological threat emerges, whether it's bioterror, a pandemic, that everybody can go into action immediately instead of trying to figure out how to respond. So basically it's a training exercise to get everyone on the same page to coordinate operations to respond immediately to an event because time is precious. That's the thinking here. So I've actually conducted a number of tabletop exercises with uh, the U.S. government and internationally. And I, I thought I found them at least I used to find them to be useful training tools you know, there, there's sort of a, an issue here, though, because if you're training people to engage in certain actions or behaviors which are not effective, it can backfire. And clearly, one of those things that was discussed in some of these tabletop exercises were lockdowns. And the funny thing here, maybe not so funny, is that I actually used to study the best, I guess, processes or operational strategies to respond to pandemics. And we do this on supercomputers uh, with modeling simulation to figure out exactly how to hone each response strategy. And, you know, this, this whole idea of lockdowns in the national pandemic pr- uh, pr- preparedness plans, which were primarily built around influenza, the two-week lockdown strategy was, is actually an effective tool just to buy a little bit of time to help figure out what to do next to give to basically to get your your operators and your first responders uh, a little bit of time so they can stage and get prepared for the big wave of infections that will likely be coming. The problem is, you know, this two week lockdown turned into <laughs> months and months and months 
of ineffective tyranny. And the issue with the tabletop exercise is there's no going back to redo it. And, I, and this is all me sort of reflecting based on my personal experience with these. So while they're not all ne nefarious, I do think Event 201 could have ha had some nefarious application in its deployment and use. But that doesn't mean that every tabletop exercise that we've done in history is bad because the reality is uh, influenza, coronaviruses, Nipah viruses, Hendra viruses, there are a few types of viruses that we've always been concerned about causing uh, pandemics with high, morbid high morbidity and mortality. And so when we shape these exercises, when we build and craft these exercises, we usually focus on those kind of agents because they're sexy for a lack of a better term. Well, one thing I want to say is that the fact that they sh they knew very early on that this was an aerosol-spreading virus. And the fact that they knew this, I mean, the World Health Organization in early April was briefed by several top environmental scientists. I mean, and the White House was briefed even earlier. I want to say no later than mid-March when I went back through the... Uh, through the emails. So everybody, all of the people in that should have been controlling our national strategy for pandemic influenza should have understood that this was different and that it required different methods and means of protection. And they, and Dr. Fauci in our country, at least basically mentioned it once or twice, but did nothing to change he, he kind of uh, doubled down on lockdowns, which is insane because even, even in this year and, and for the last three years, I can walk into almost any restaurant and the, they can have fans and the fans will not be circulating air. You can go into schools. They don't have windows cracked, doors cracked. They don't have HEPA filters on their um, filtration system. There are so many things that could have been done to vastly reduce the risk be because this was an aerosol spreading virus that were never done. And it boggles the mind. And it, to me, I can't tell that's nefarious, but it's hard for me to say anything else when it's been three years and they still haven't come out and said that. I completely agree. And the first publication that I noticed when the, so after the initial outbreak, the, the uh, uh, epidemic phase has taken hold in Asia. There was a publication that came out of South Korea where they analyzed all the participants. Uh -oh, I'm getting feedback. Is that me? Uh, I analyzed all of the – so there was a study that came out of South Korea where they had a number of patrons at a restaurant eating dinner. And this particular restaurant was separated by uh, four different floors – different diners on all four floors. The only people moving between the different floors were the wait staff. And each floor had different wait staff. So the interesting thing here is that uh, some patrons came in who were infected with COVID on the first floor and they somehow infected people on the fourth floor. And there was no contact between uh, servers or anyone else tra traveling between the first and fourth floor. So in my mind, when this comes out, this is a seminal pu publication indicating that this is an airborne 
transmissible disease, but yet the U.S. government was trying to at least, and the World Health Organization was telling everyone that this was a fomite transmissible disease, and fomite means uh, an, an inanimate object you can touch and then spread the disease by someone else touching it like a doorknob. So to, to echo Charles' point, this is, this is very strange. And, you know, a, a fun, fun little fact here for everyone, the solution to pollution is dilution, old, old saying from the 60s. And with aerosol diseases, that's very much true. And it's very simple. It's very simple just to increase the amount of air exchanges that you have in indoor spaces and the amount of UV radiation to eliminate or mitigate the infectious disease threat vector. And this is well known in hospital settings, uh, isolation units. And when you see these BSL-3 and 4 laboratories, that's one of the main compo uh, components of biosecurity and biosafety is having a high volume of air exchange. Exactly. So, so why the U.S. government and HHS or CDC doesn't come out and you know, push this information out to everyone, I have no clue. But I do remember some very smart environmental uh, hygienists coming out and helping gyms, for example, reopen safely by simply – improving the HVAC in the facilities. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily even require filtration. I just have to, you just have to have frequent air exchanges. Uh, Andrew, can you, I found the clip and I am going to play it. Can you define live exercise for us, please? Live exercise? Is that what you said? You cut out. Yes. Live exercise? I'm not yes. sure if I understand the question. Can you define live exercise as it pertains to exercises? Versus tabletop, versus table tennis, versus speculation, conjecture. Uh, sure. What is a live exercise? Thank you. So, or Colonel so, Hoffman. Sure, I can let the Colonel Hoffman take it. He hasn't spoken in a while. Uh, well, there are a number of definitions to it. So it depends on what kind of exercise. I mean, if you're in the military, usually a live exercise means you have troops maneuvering over some battlefield someplace or, you know, on the ground simulating battle with people actually moving around doing things. Um, live exercises in, in this case, I think, indicated that they had people in multiple locations who were responding to inputs and uh, developments within the scenario of the exercise and then providing feedback on a near real-time basis so that people were you know, accepting data, then reacting to it, giving feedback, maybe taking steps someplace to do things. And then we have a tabletop. Usually that's in one place. Everybody's around a series of tables, maybe split between a couple of rooms, and you're just exchanging information very locally and just in the tabletop environment. Um, that's typically how I would parse that when presented with, a, you know, how are you going to name an exercise? Okay, excellent. So, so then that should help us. Either, either this will continue uh, the big question mark looming over everyone's heads, or hopefully we can put it to rest in this space today. With you gentlemen have more knowledge, who have more knowledge than all of us collectively. Uh, but I do want to uh, play this clip, and this is from a press conference with President Trump. This was in a March of uh, March twenty first, to be exact, of twenty twenty. This is Mike Pompeo, along with Dr. Fauci, uh, Vice President Pence, and President Trump uh, standing at the podium. We'll see if I can pull this up for us. Here we go. May I just say one more thing? There, there's been some discussion about China and what they knew and when they knew it. And I've, I've been very critical. We, we, we need to know immediately. The world is entitled to know. The Chinese government was the first to know of this risk to the world. And that puts a special obligation to make sure that data, the data gets to our scientists, our professionals. This is not about retribution. This matters going forward. We're in a, we're in a live exercise here. 
to get this right. We, we, we're, in a, we're in a live exercise here to get this right. Okay. And as you can hear, you know, th- this particular clip goes on to play it over and over again. And here's President Trump, you know, uh, in typical President Trump fashion, uh, standing off to the side of the podium and says, eh, they should have let us know. And th- this is a live exercise, right? And all eyes uh, float back to China. So all eyes should be on China. Uh, so can, can one of you gentlemen uh, either, you know, uh, allay our suspicions here and our theories well, or, you know, or add to them? <laughs> Thank yes, you. Yes, John. I, I think maybe you're taking the context here maybe a little misunderstood. The point that the first speaker was making is that this is not just an exercise, if you will, exercising what might happen if you had a disease. When he said this is a live exercise in March of 2020, he's saying this is the real deal. We're actually fighting this disease on the ground right now. So we're, we're actually looking at things we need to be doing to improve our ability to fight this as we're dealing with casualties, uh, high morbidity, high mortality right now in hospitals uh, across the country. And I think that's what he was referring to okay. at this point. Okay, thank you. Mr. Rixey, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think <clears throat> given that uh, later on, so 11 months after this or 10 months after this, uh, five days before the inauguration of Biden, that was when Mike Pompeo dropped the intel that there, they had evidence that there were three researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology who got sick with a flu-like illness in the fall of 2019, sick enough to be in the hospital. So, and actually, what, what, is, what they said there is that one of those three died. So I'm, I'm willing to give Mike Pompeo the benefit of the doubt here because I agree with with Colonel Hoffman, I don't think that in this case that was intentional um, because I also know that it was that, that the Trump administration was being lied to by lots of different people, especially Anthony Fauci and uh, Kelvin Drogemeyer. And so they weren't getting all the information. And in this case, like, like I said, I'm willing to give – Michael, I'm paying the benefit of the doubt because it, the actions that I did see from him going on, he made sure that the intel about those three researchers was released before the Biden administration took over. And I think the reason was, is he was afraid that they would not ever release that information. And so he wanted to make sure that it did get out. So, so I'm willing to take, I'm willing to take him at face value here. Okay, excellent. And I'm assuming, Dr. Huff, you probably feel the same. So for those of you in the space who have, um, who have questioned that, and, and we have tended to lean back on that, because, primarily because of President Trump's response, they should have let us know. <laughs> or you should have let us know uh, that, you know, we've heard both. And as you could hear audibly there, it was they should have let us know. And so, you know, the rest of us onlookers are thinking, well, who knew what, when, why? And, and, and who, who exactly should we be pointing the finger at? So that's why we're having this conversation, uh, amongst other things. So hopefully, uh, you guys, you know, that I don't know if that will satisfy your, uh, you know, accusations at this point or questions, but I did want to bring that to everyone's attention because I personally wanted to, uh, lay that to rest or continue to, you know, put that over into the corner of a potential evidence stash. But, uh, Andrew, I'm assuming you agree with the other gentleman. 
I, I completely agree. I think when he said that, it was just sort of a off the cuff comment in context of sort of military intelligence jargon. But this, John, so, I would, the, I would also, Andrew. Let me just sit and say, you know, think about when this is. This is March, and things are just really starting to happen in the United States. And yet you still didn't really have an adequate alarm, if you will, as to what was likely happening and how big this was going to get. And I think people knew. And I think, you know, part of what that, you know, tells you is that that there was an awareness that this was a much bigger thing than most people, even in March of 2020 in the United States, really understood. And and it was going to have a much greater impact. Um, and I... I, you know, I, I really think that gets to the one of the core issues here about communicating with the public what's actually happening, what's likely to happen, what we're going to be experiencing, what we're going to be prepared for. Because remember, still at this point in time, you have people saying, well, we've got a couple of weeks and we'll be fine. And that's, you know, it, clearly that was not the case. That's clearly not what was happening in China. Clearly what not happened was not happening in Europe. And there should have been a more transparent, if you will. Uh, presentation of the facts to the American public and of what really needed to be done. Well, sure. Thank you. Really quick, uh, Colonel. Uh, Christopher, hold on one second for me, please, because we only have uh, Colonel Hoffman for a very short period of time, and I believe we only have him for a few more minutes. Uh, he's on a tight schedule. So uh, if your question is quick, go for it. If not, and it's just a comment, I'd prefer that we wait so we get as much of his time as, not, as we can. Uh, so it, with that uh, in mind, go ahead. I mean, we can we can pass on it, and I could just bring it up later. Okay, cool. All right, awesome. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Doctor Huff. Well, I think the the thing that's obvious here is that many people surrounding the president of the United States knew what was going on, and wasn't in. I guess potentially wasn't communicating that directly to the president. I guess that's the assumption here. So, the thing that I find perplexing is why did so many people? from the intelligence community, from the Department of Defense, uh, and then people that were obviously informed at Health and Human Services, because I don't believe you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci received this information first. Obviously, the Department of Defense picks it up first. Uh, either the, the Department of Homeland Security, other intelligence agencies pick up this, this information. So I'm just confused. Why doesn't anybody in a leadership position stand up and communicate this information to the public? And how high does it go within the government? Does it hit Trump's staff? And why does it stop? I mean, in that part, that part, none of that actually makes sense to me to this day. I don't get it. Well, I think you would have to go into a political conversation, which you don't really want to go down that road uh, today, <laughs> unless you do. Uh, but that that is a long, dark, ominous road. Uh, so I think there's probably I think two things can be true and two or three things could have been occurring simultaneously. And one of them for sure. And I'll just say this as a as a political consultant, I do see the politics behind why you would not uh, keep him well informed, which they were. That was a common practice throughout his administration from day one before he ever sat before he ever stepped foot into the Oval Office. This was a common practice. I do not say that as a Trump supporter or a Republican. That is the evidence all points to that from every source I have within his administration and those who have since moved on. So it's, you know, I think politically there are reasons there. Now, as it pertains to your world with regard to national security, uh, to me, it's indefensible. Uh, not, not only with Dr. Fauci, you know, on the, on the medical side of things, NIH, um, WEF, 
I mean, I think there are a lot of players here that we've uncovered <laughs> over the past few weeks and probably more. So I, I think you can't answer that question without having a political conversation as well. Hey, this is John. I'd like to conclude here because I am I do have a hard stop. Um, but along these lines, I, I think that this also led to a disparity of response at the state and local level. The lack of transparency, the lack of uh, cohesive direction, if you will, um, and and the political politicization of this whole thing really led to huge disparities. So depending on what state you were in, your restaurant was open or it wasn't open. Grocery store would let a certain number of people in or grocery store was open to everybody. I mean, this was this this uneven application of response. Much of it was, you know, misguided anyway. But the, the way it happened, I don't think it did anything to attenuate the spread of the disease. It really didn't. I mean, even looking at whether this was a fomite issue, an aerosolization issue or whatever, this lack of cohesive response for the country undermined our ability as a nation uh, to respond to it, to protect people. Uh, and worse, it's damaged our economy. I mean, the Amen. food economy in this country is never going to be the same. It is fundamentally changed right now. And we have food insecurity around the country and, and part of our populations that didn't exist before COVID. And there aren't solutions in place right now to fix those. Colonel Hoffman, I'd love to have you back on to actually discuss that if you're available to do so. I, I don't think people really understand the magnitude of what you just said. Yeah, happy to do that. I think that uh, it, it's its own topic that needs to be addressed. Uh, and the lessons learned from this, I mean, it, it's uh, it's phenomenal what we need to be doing. Excellent. Thank you, sir. I know you're on a tight leash and tight schedule. Uh, thank you very much for being here with us and, and lending your expertise and experience. And thank you for your service to the country as well. And uh, yeah, thanks for your sobriety. And, and thanks for bringing that, you know, back down into a realistic possibility with regard to uh, Mike Pompeo as well as President Trump. I appreciate you. Glad to be here. Glad to help. And uh, this is something we need to be studying for quite a while. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I'll take care. So, Andrew, thank you. I, I know you, um, I know also we normally shut our space down by four. So, I'm not sure how you would like, boy, I have so many things I want to say. <laughs> sure. Let's, let's take some questions. And, and, yeah. And, okay. And questions or comments, let's, let's uh, see what Charles and I come up with. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. All right, let's go to, let me pull some people up. I have not done that yet today. So give me one second. Monica protects with gold.com. Why do I have to tell you? Really? Climbing debt, United States dollar losing value, inflation increasing in unprecedented rates, not to mention cost of living increasing while living on a fixed income for some of you. And for those of you getting ready for retirement, how many of you have lost up to 40% of your retirement portfolio? What are you waiting for? A market crash? I hope not. Precious metals provide security and stability when the stock market is volatile. And in general, metals have an inverse relationship to the stock market. So today, MonicaProtectsWithGold.com. I want to thank those of you in my audience who have let me know that you're actually sleeping better at night since you have made the conversion, whether it's your savings account, Roth IRA, or your 401k plans. I do congratulate you for taking your finances into your own hands as everything is in uh, an upheaval globally. Congratulations for being a responsible adult with your hard-earned money and inquiring today at monicaprotectswithgold.com. As you guys are coming up, please be mindful of our time. Um, I'd love to keep this germane to the conversation. I realize many of you are, are injured. You are really angry. There's a lot of emotions. Uh, we, you know, there are plenty of spaces for that. This is not one of them. 
not today. That's not what we're doing. So please stay on topic and ask questions. You have people here who have more knowledge than you could possibly realize. So please have your questions prepared whenever you come up. If you do have comments, that's great too, but please keep them to you know a minimum of a minute and a half. I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, who am I going to first? Nick, please. Thank you. Uh, Nick, that would be you, Nick Moneypenny. Maybe she's having an issue. Sorry, with yeah, I was there. Um, I've got Twitter uh, put me on some sort of soft blocking thing I'm trying to work out. <laughs> it's so why, good to hear your voice. I'm so Dr. glad Andrew you're here today. was the last person I spoke to. I'm going to blame him. Um, yeah, this is fascinating stuff. And obviously um, within his book, um, which I'm going to plug because it is amazing. So what happened in Wuhan, it's on his profile. If anybody hasn't got it, get it because it has so much information. You can't afford to miss it. Um, the military um, exercise that was held in Wuhan in October 2019, which I believe to be the 19th of October 2019, the Wuhan Military Games, um, to my knowledge, had over 9,000 athletes from 40 different countries and was held, um, began on the very same day that Event 201 happened at the Pierre Hotel in New York um, in uh, America, which was hosted and, and attended by uh, Bill Gates and uh, lots of the J.P. Morgans and Vanguards and Black Rocks and people we're all too aware of. Um, was that a coincidence? And was it part of uh, the whole military strategy? Do you believe in your personal opinion, uh, Dr. Huff, that uh, the athletes left a lot of them with respiratory illnesses and that whilst they were there for those 10 days, they hardly saw anybody. It was a ghost town was the phrase that was used and you repeated it in your book because Wuhan's 17 hospitals were full of people very ill with respiratory illness. Thank you. So I think that Event 201 being scheduled at the same time as the World uh, Military Games are at the same time frame, I, that's probably not a coincidence. The World Military Games would have been scheduled, you know, a year in advance. So I, that date was already set. And the one thing that, that's obvious to me without any hard factual evidence is that the Five Eyes Nations and the U.S. military likely detected uh, a new novel disease in, in the population of uh, service members who attended those events. It, it just doesn't make sense that all these people could have attended these games, not come down with illness, and then the Department of Defense, uh, you know, they would naturally launch an investigation into this to figure out what the disease is. The reality is they probably already knew what it was, and they're accepting or assuming the risk. Excellent. Thank you. Nick, thank you for that. I hope you're feeling better, ma'am. Good to Long see time. you here. Okay. Uh, Tim, I'm sorry. I interrupted you earlier. Uh, what did you want to add? And then we're going to go over to Tracy. Thank you. I was just, I was, uh, I'm a registered FEMA student. And uh, when I was contacting the state of Pennsylvania during the pandemic response, uh, the, it was so, the, the state police and FEMA itself were so confused about what the directions were. Even when I called up to the attorney general's office, they, they, they even, they could not clarify what exactly their stay-at-home orders meant, uh, what the ramifications were, what the depth and detail of those closed plans or orders were. It was, um, yes, it was a real mess all the way around. And I really look forward to talking to um, Colonel Hoffman more about that. Absolutely. I think we should. And and if you guys, if you gentlemen are up to it, I'd love to continue the conversation, um, particularly around the food uh, uh food quote shortages uh if you will that would be great and and i saw it too that that's where i began to see the politicization because i live in atlanta georgia and i was considered 
whatever that is. What, what was I? A necessary person, whatever. Uh, imagine that being on the air. Um, and, and we were actually trying to keep people calm and keep people home because we didn't know what we were dealing with. But almost instantaneously, because our governor chose to take his own path with regard to keeping the state open, that immediately became an, a political accusation against President Trump. In the minute, it because our governor is an alleged Republican, in the moment that went to that those types of you know accusations nationally, we lost all control over the narrative, over truth, over sharing actual information. And we had the CDC here, so we had half the city that was shut. Most of the city was shut down. The other half thought our governor, who's white, was trying to kill black people because they didn't have access to masks and to this and to that and food shortages and toilet paper shortages. I mean, it was a disaster. It was unbelievable how the lack of information and cohesiveness, which is what uh, Colonel Hoffman was referring to, it was completely anemic. It was gone. It ghosted us as a nation. It's horrible. So that's where the politics began in my state, for sure. Uh, Tracy, please go ahead. Good afternoon. Hi, Monica and Tin and Doctor. Um, thanks for having the space. I was late to the party here, of course. Uh, work, work, work. But um, my question is to the doctor, why do you think that the government didn't call upon the industrial hygienists who are, you know, it is, it's what they do, you know, in preparing for a pandemic and stuff, um, why they didn't call upon them. And, you know, we had here in Michigan two of the best industrial hygienists who worked for Myosha and also um, in the military uh, in a pandemic and, and, and chemical, uh, you know, emergencies and stuff like that. And they were screaming at the top of their lungs about, you know, the masks don't work. They're 1% effective. And um, in HVAC units, why, why the schools didn't get the HVAC units put in properly. And that would have mitigated like 80% of the problem right then and there. So do you have a, do you have a um, answer to that? I mean, my working hypothesis, and I noticed this some time ago with other um, emerging infectious disease events is that, Typically, the people that are appointed in, appointed to leadership positions in public health at the state or federal level are medical doctors with MPHs. And I think you've heard Dr. Robert Malone, he says something to the fact that, you know, an MPH does not make you an epidemiologist or environmental health expert or a toxicologist. And if you look at the, the key domains of, of public health, where there, where there are graduate level programs which uh, teach industrial hygiene or environmental health, um, most of those people do not end up in, uh, who are trained in those disciplines do not end up in leadership positions. So the, the medical doctors, I think philosophy is typically focusing on traditional medical and individual uh, level interventions uh, to remedy the problem. So it's just, you know, it's one of the, the many failings of the structure and well, probably just the structure of the public health system. Thank you for that. Tracy, thanks for that question. That was great. A few more uh, questions, and then we're going to wrap up. Christopher, I know you have some things that you would like to add and or questions, 10 as well. And then I will go to Mr. Rixey and Dr. Huff. So let's go to uh, Arius, please. Hello. Um, the one thing I would like to uh, bring to this conversation would be, in 2016, uh, Jennifer Duda, she was a scientist that uh, uh, came up with the or invented the 
CRISPR. And I've, follow, I've been following her because I actually believed in that, in the, in the technology. In 2017, she ended up having a snag with funding. And then I don't believe I, I saw much after that. So that's 2018. When COVID happened, COVID in my head is uh, SARS. SARS, you know, so it all, it all matches up. So in my head, this happened before people just never made a big a big stink out of it um so it was just a, a, a somebody was throwing out there to try to get funding and to continue the idea that that is uh what they're doing is necessary for the for human life and so um i then believe that the left the leadership on the left made it a political and tried to force situations to root out the the other side, not realizing the how heavy this was actually going to play out. That's when things got messed up. On the local side, all the leadership did not have spines to just stand up to to their own to their own supervisors to their own leadership and be like, "Hey, hey, what's going on?" And then, that, uh, Aries, I, I think we all agree with you on that. And then, do you have a question for the, for these guys while we have them here? My question, because so, we are actually getting ready to wrap. My question comes into into the into the the understanding whether or not the the once the vaccine had, was injected, can we find a way to understand if it stays in the system, if it's already came in and did its deed, it's unchanging, sure. and 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 that's where where we're because I have I have family members that are actually you know experiencing side effects i didn't take the vaccine sure. but everybody else did that's that's my question so Arius, we have actually we've covered some of this in these spaces and and i will be well, here's what we're going to do as soon as we finish this series we are going to make a compilation of all of the spaces it will be available i will make it available to all of you and you will not have to subscribe to my podcast to get it i think this information is very important and i will be happy to send it to you if you will dm me that information is in there and there are plenty of people also mr rixie has made himself available to you guys so please reach out to him as well uh, but we we have covered that, and for the sake of time, um, I do want you to have your questions answered. It's just that I'm on a tight schedule here with these gentlemen. So is that okay if we do it that way, sir? Absolutely. I'm okay, with you cool. Guys. I'm Thank with you. you guys. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry for the suffering occurring in your family. I do want to go to one more question um, and someone I, uh, I enjoy his basis as well. Uh, Michael, please go ahead. Oh, good afternoon. Uh, I'll try to make this quick. Uh, one, has has anybody been actually doing the research to find the different ground zeros throughout the world that, you know, the, the exposure had taken place? And, and are there any areas of exposure that are unexplained um, is one of the questions. And uh, has any doctors found uh, a, a DNA or a, a gene that separates the people that, you know, are grossly affected versus not grossly affected because you know i've heard uh blood type is a factor but uh was wondering if there was more those are great questions so i know of a japanese gene that um a whole load of japanese in one particular part of japan absolutely exempt had a barrier to it e293 off memory would have to go and look it up so there there are epidemiologists who are investigating 
what the origin or what the, the likely origin of the disease is. So one of the, the methods that they've been deploying is that they go and they look at blood donation, blood bank uh, donations, and then they analyze the, the serum and they can use serology to do that. It's one method. And then when they identify people that had the disease retrospectively, then they go and ask those people, you know, they, they, they do an investigation. So did you travel to China? Where did you travel? Who, who did you have contact with? with? And when they've done that investigation or those investigations, all paths point back to Wuhan. So that, that in my mind, uh, essentially makes it a, cl- a closed case. I mean, new, new uh, evidence could emerge at any point, and I could be wrong. But thus far, through a fairly large N or number of cases, they all point back to Wuhan. And the later, second part of your question, <clears throat> are there individuals who have unique uh, genetic characteristics which seem to, to be affected uh, more adversely? Yes. And there is a big body of literature on that emerging. I mean, there's probably at least a couple thousand publications that I've seen. Thank you for that. Christopher Tan, go ahead. Hi, Chris. Hey, yeah, so um, I was going to ask when before the colonel um, had left, but given all that we've covered now, um, what is the, because uh, the, the, the opinion was that this is a live exercise, meaning this is happening in real time, which is fine. But then what do you guys feel led to the president of the United States then saying you should have told us? Is what he, are, are, you, are you guys suggesting that he was kind of, hinting at Mike, Pateo, Mike Pompeo to say China should have told us or that he was caught off guard and that Mike Pompeo should have told him? Uh, well, I just want to say real fast that I think that what he was referring to, somewhere right around this time, um, and I don't remember what, if it was right after or just before, but he didn't, Donald Trump didn't know about the NIH ties to Wuhan. And so when it was, it wasn't until, I think it might even have been a little later, but he, he was aware at least by the time the lockdowns were happening, that things had been happening that he wasn't aware of. And you can tell this simply by, well, it's not simple, but having read 130,000 pages of FOIA documents, you can see when the, government is starting to turn on and know that things are going on in the middle of January. And you can contrast that with what Trump was saying, what his administration was saying up until about two weeks prior uh, to the actual lockdowns. And the biggest case of this would be the, the fight over whether or not to shut down travel from China, because Trump was, was being told by, some people in his administration, hey, this is bad, we need to lock down. And Fauci and the World Health Organization were saying, no, it's not locked down. And it wasn't until, I think, the day prior that, that Fauci kind of came on board and started saying that. But what's really messed up is that Fauci already knew that this virus was bad, but he wasn't giving... So basically, there was conflicting information coming from his from his people and that was intentional <clears throat> for several reasons but the bottom line is is that trump he i i think that he knew that there was stuff going on behind the scenes but he didn't understand it and 
anytime that you're at the top and there's conflicting information coming up, it's it's very disconcerting. So, and this is the reason why I bring this up real quick is because the the culmination of this series, like Monica's done a fantastic series with you and with Dr. Huff um, and with the Colonel and others, um, because it's really put a lot of pieces together, right? And especially given the Fauci files that have now come out, which Charles and Andrew, you guys have seen in advance, but a lot of the people like myself and others did not see these, some of these emails that were unredacted, right? And, um, and so, um, but we now know this to be the case. So what's stunning for me, and I'm kind of curious about the implications of this, what your guys' take is, criminally speaking, um, I, you, uh, you had governors... I mean, a lot of people now have had lost loved ones and my heart breaks for them. Right. But in the early moments, you had governors like Cuomo in New York that took these sick patients and stuck them in senior living facilities, which then contributed to a massive amount of death in the state of New York. Yep. No one stepped in and said no one meaning Fauci or no one that reports to Fauci stepped in and said, this has a fear and cleavage site. This is not, we have indications this may be man made or coming out of a lab. You need to change this policy now. No one did any of that. And I'm curious about what your guys' thoughts are in terms of the implication, legally speaking, um, or medically speaking, going forward even in terms of processes to prevent that kind of death from ever happening again. Well, <laughs> well, I think that's where the, the next space is going to go because we're going to talk about policy. Okay. With, with Dr. Anthony Fauci specifically, you have to remember that he was in, incentivized to, to lie and lie in a couple different ways to at least the Trump administration. So by this point in time, if we're talking the, the spring of 2020, the Chinese are already falsifying case data and sending it to the United States. And then the United States government doesn't scrutinize or question that information. And then that information is then being used to make policy decisions at the highest level. But Dr. Anthony Fauci already knows where this came from, what the source is. And he has every incentive in the world to let it burn because he's making all this money uh, from the uh, mRNA gene therapy. And he's under probably extreme pressure from the Department of Defense to push out the mRNA gene therapy because it's a policy uh, priority for both the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense. So there you have it, folks, um, in the lead up to the next space. So now uh, I, we won't, we'll have the doctor hold some of the information he knows and, and Charles to hold some, on some of that topic. But the next space is going to be really awesome, apparently. So you all be, be, make sure you join the next space and make sure you share it out going forward. Um, and Monica, I appreciate you giving me a, an opportunity to ask a couple of those questions. Yeah, of course. Uh, Tim Paul? So on, on this question of documentation, uh, this question is for both you, Andrew and uh, Charles. We, we see that there's just so so much documentation that that has been you know finally brought to light and out of everything that you reviewed both of you have reviewed so far what is the biggest red flag out of all that documentation that shows you a cover-up occurred and you know that really best indicates the nature of that cover-up dr christian anderson <laughs> do, you, do you agree with that charles um <clears throat> No, actually, I think I think the biggest cover-up is from the fact that the they finished the sequence of the of the vaccine on January thirteenth, 
And by that date, in their own words, they chose to retain the Fearing Creedence site on January 13th. So the fact that they didn't, they still weren't talking about it on March 17th, when, when the Proximal Origin came out, or March 21st, when, or March 16th or 23rd, whenever the lockdowns came, they covered up how transmissible this was and how dangerous it was and the fact that it was unnatural. So I would say that that, that data point, the fact that it was January 13th, I think that's the, ultimately the most damning thing. So what was that document called? It was the name of it or, or what it was wasn't, it wasn't a document, but it, there have been peer reviewed papers that come out that explain the timeline of when the MRNA um, prototype vaccine was finished. <clears throat> and the fact that the fact that both Moderna and Pfizer ultimately went with the same thing and they they had finished those prototype sequences by the 13th and 14th respectively. Ultimately, that's the thing that's going to damn all of them, I think. Or the fact that they put that into production in, in mid to late December in, in 2019. So I, it's part of the same story, but the production documents are are available. And I can repost some of those. I haven't looked at them in a while, but they're also cited in my book. Yeah, and we'll talk about that next time, too. So that's all leading up to what we're going to cap it off with. Charles, thank you, sir. If you guys are not following Charles Rixey, you need to be. Uh, he is. He has an abundance of knowledge and, and passion on the subject, as well as Dr. Huff, obviously. Uh, Andrew, tell people where they can find your book, please. You can find my book everywhere, uh, thanks to Skyhorse Publishing. If you go to simonandschuster.com, it probably gives the publisher the best book stats. Otherwise, you can pick it up on Amazon, Target, Walmart, or any major retailer. Fantastic. Uh, please follow my co-hosts. That would be Christopher Marino. Get him over 10,000 and, uh, and Tinfoil as well. Uh, anyone else you know, who's been in the panel, uh, Colonel Hoffman, I don't think he's very active on Twitter. I think he actually did that just for us <laughs> to bring you guys information. Uh, Dr. Huff, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to bless us with this series. Uh, I always pray us out. So, Father in heaven, thank you for exposing what has happened in the dark. Your word tells us that you will. So, I thank you that those promises are made true. And we are, in fact, being uh, we are discovering what has happened in the dark. We pray over every person here who has struggled. Struggling, suffering, family members, loss, loss of life, loss of income uh, due to this wickedness that was prepared in secret to be released uh, publicly and, uh, and not shared with us so that we knew how to take proper precautions. But I thank you, Father, that you're bigger than any virus, anything man-made or otherwise. And I thank you that healing is pervasive and that is your first uh, that is your heart. That is your mind to heal us and to lead us into liberty with truth. So thank you for the truth here today. Thank you for Andrew and his courage uh, and his expertise. Father, thank you for um, Mr. Rixie as well and his. And please watch over Colonel Hoffman as he is still navigating uh, within the womb of what I would refer to as the belly of the beast in our national security apparatus. So I thank you for this day, and I bless everyone in this space. Please make sure that you share it. We will produce this into a show very shortly, and you guys are welcome to share that as well. Thank you, and join us. Uh, I believe we're coming back Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, for the conclusion of this particular series, uh, Risk Factor, Why COVID Was Made, and we will conclude with uh, even more evidence, as, as you just heard here a few minutes ago. So thank you all very much for joining us, Andrew. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Have a good day.